Hey, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Tree of Life Church podcast. It's our prayer that these messages help connect you to the life, love, and power of Jesus. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, um, I do go back uh, a long way as far as this church is concerned, and I, n- I never want to be remiss in saying two things. Uh, Don, your dad is smiling. He, he's so proud. But I want to add, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for your faithfulness to God and all that you do. That being said, we're going to pray. We're going to jump into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to spend a few moments together. Lord, anytime we gather, we want to learn. We want to get smarter. We want to get better. We never want want what we know yesterday to be all that we know. We always want to be striving towards you. Today, Lord, through the Spirit of God, would you minister? Uh, Through the Word of God, would you speak? And together, would you change our lives so that when it's all said and done, you would help us to be more like Jesus than ever before. That is our passionate prayer in the mighty, in the precious name of Jesus. And we all agree together saying, in Acts chapter 27 and verse 20, we read these words. It says, and the terrible storm raged, and it raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until all hope was gone. It's one of those verses that's pretty raw. It talks about someone being caught up in a storm. It talks about the storm doesn't seem to come to an end. And because the storm won't come to the end, they can't see the sun, they can't see the stars, and now all hope is gone. Those particular words are a little bit personal to me as a pastor, because what I know is on any given Sunday, if I were to ask questions like this, how many of you believe that Jesus is your healer, hands would go up. If I were to ask the question, how many of you believe that Jesus is your provider, hands would go up. If I were to ask the question, how many of you believe that God is able to deliver from any circumstance, hands would go up. But then if I were to meet with some of you individually, I'd hear stories like this. You know what, I've been diagnosed with cancer and I believe God, and I've prayed, and I've asked God for his help, but I'm just not sure what's happening. Or it would go something like this, my career has hit a wall. It doesn't seem to be uh, progressing the way I thought. I'm not sure that I will ever reach the position that I thought I would reach. See, in those conversations, you see a distinction, and that is that most Christians don't have a faith problem Most Christians have a hope problem. It's not that they lack faith that God can do something. It's that they lack hope that those things will happen in their life. And what the Bible makes clear is that you were created to be a person of hope. Whether you realize it or not, God created you to be an individual with hope. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12 puts it this way. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Basically, that verse says that when you lack hope on the inside, 
There's a part of you that doesn't function perfectly. It doesn't function the way that God ordains you to function. Something about you begins to not be what God intended for you to be. Let me build a bridge. Um, Unlike most pastors, our church in the North Dallas area, we do many services on Sunday. After you've done a whole lot of services and you've talked to people and you've prayed with people and you've sort of given them your heart, on Sunday afternoon, there's really one thing the majority of all pastors want to do, and that is they want to go home and take a nap. That's it. That's, that's their goal. Let's have a good church service. Let's go home and take a nap. And then you wake up and you do whatever is sort of relaxing. Well, for me, reading is relaxing. So many years ago on a Sunday, I uh, had taken my nap. I got up and I began to look for something to read. We had been sent uh, a magazine that they were trying to get us to purchase. I wasn't interested in purchasing it, but I picked it up because I needed something to read. I went through all the articles in it and I ran across one and it was entitled this, I Wished I Could Prescribe Hope. Now, immediately when I read that, I thought, well, some pastor wrote an article. Somehow it got in this magazine, but I was intrigued by the title that I wished I could prescribe hope. And so what I did was, is I began to read that article, but I was a little bit surprised. It wasn't written by anyone who professed Christian faith. It was written by a surgeon. Now, this particular surgeon was talking about his years of doing surgery on people, and he did very complicated surgeries, and he said, I just wish that I could prescribe hope to people. I wish that I could give people hope. I wish that I could impart to them hope. And then he went like this. He says, as a surgeon, before you do any surgery, um, you go out and you meet with the person and you just go over what you've already gone over many times before and said, do you understand what this surgery is about? Do you understand what we're trying to accomplish? Do you understand the challenges of this surgery? Do you understand the difficulties of this surgery? Do you understand what the downsides of these surgeries can be, and they call it the pre-surgery consult. And he said, I would go out and have that. And he says, over the years, I've begun to notice that sometimes I would have two people in the same day who had the exact same issue. They're going to have the exact same surgery. They're going to have the exact same thing going on. And he said, I would begin to do a surgery on them. And he said, they're two different people, but there's no reason that the outcome would be different. But he began, he said, I began to notice that one person would say this, you know what, doctor, I know this is a tough surgery. I know that this is a heart surgery. The recovery's not going to be easy, but I've got some things to do in life and I'm planning on doing those things and I'm going to get through this and everything's going to be all right. And then he said, I would notice that there would be other people who would literally say, you know what? I'm concerned about this. I know there's some risk to this. I know there's some problems and I'm concerned about this and I'm not sure. And he said, over the years, what I found was this, the person who went into surgery with the hope that there was going to be a tomorrow did better than the person who had no expectation or was concerned. He said, I'm watching this and I'm watching people just do better when they have hope. I'm reading this article and I put it down. I'm thinking, my goodness, here's someone, I can't tell if they're a Christian. I can't tell if they believe in God. I can't tell if they want to believe 
believe in God, but they've stumbled onto the principle. You were created to be a person of hope. And if you are a person of hope, things work better in your life. And some of you right now, in all honesty, you don't have a faith problem. You believe that God can. You believe that God will do all the things that we sing about up here. But the one thing that you lack is you lack hope. Now, here's the thing. Many of you know Joel Osteen. Uh, Joel's a friend of mine. I'm, I'm not real close to Joel, but I was very close to his dad, John. Now, John was a man that because of my spiritual father, I got to, to be close to, and therefore I got to be close to his wife, Dodie, Joel's mom. Well, if you know anything about um, John, one of the things he did was around Thanksgiving, he did a giant missions conference. It was famous. Missionaries would come from all over. They would come and they would be a part of this. It was a big event. Pastors, even though it was Thanksgiving, would make their way down there. They wanted to be a part. It would have the best speakers. It would be packed out. It would be totally full. Well, one day at this conference, Dodie is sitting on the front row with some of her uh, daughters-in-law, and as she's sitting there, she turns to one of them and says, hey, I think I need to go to the restroom. I'm just going to step out. And she just quietly steps out and goes to the restroom. Well, when she goes out, the daughters-in-law begin to notice she doesn't come back in. And they start looking at their watches and thinking, this is unlike her. Why didn't she come? One of the daughters-in-laws literally begins to uh, sneak her way back there. And as she goes back there, they find Dodie literally passed out on the floor of the ladies' room, and she is hemorrhaging. They immediately call for uh, Joel's brother, who happens to be a doctor, and he runs back there. He sees what's happening, does everything he can to stabilize. They call the ambulance. The ambulance gets. She's unconscious. They take her uh, to the hospital. During this time, she's lost blood, so she's weakened. She's unconscious. They're trying to stabilize her, but they begin to run tests. When they run the tests, they begin to find out that she has cancer, and she has a very very aggressive kind of cancer. Her son is a doctor. He knows the prognosis. He knows that naturally speaking, this isn't the kind of cancer that someone recovers from. But it's his job when mom wakes up to tell her what they found out. So all the families gathered there. Dodie begins to wake up. She sees all the family. She could see that they're distraught. And she goes into her mama mode and just says, hey, you know, everything's fine. Everything's fine. You know, I was just a little tired. I just passed out. Don't worry about everything. And they said, mama, that's not it. The son begins to speak up, but he knows what she has. He tries to tell her, but he breaks down and he has to leave the room. As he leaves the room, another doctor comes in and says, Mrs. Osteen, this is what you have. It's a cancer. We need to keep you here. We need to run tests. Well, after a few days, Dodie turns to her son and says, I need you to take me home. Son says, Mom, you know, there's some tests we need to run. There's some things. She said, sweetheart, I'm going to run every test that you need to run on me. I'm going to do everything medically that you say we need to do but I need to go home. 
He said, well, it would just be easier here. See, in his mind, he thought that she was giving up on all the natural things that they could do. But he began to uh, talk to her, and she said, sweetheart, I'm going to do everything that you say I need to do. I'll come back as many times, but I need to go home. And he looked at her, and he said, why is it that you need to go home? Why can't you just stay here to be easier here? And she looked at him, and she said, sweetheart, everything in this room tells me I'm dying. I need to go home. She then told all the daughters and said, hey, I want you to get pictures. She wanted pictures of her riding horses because that's what she loved to do. She wanted pictures of her with the grandkids. And all of you that are kids, can I tell you something? Once you give us grandkids, we don't care about your pictures anymore. We just want the grandkids' pictures. She said, I, I, I want all the pictures of the grandkids there. And they said, why? She said, I want to see what my future is. I want to see myself riding my horses. I want to see myself doing things with my grandkids. You know what Dodie knew? Dodie knew that if she was going to be a person of faith, she also had to be a person of hope. That she had to think that there was going to be a tomorrow and that tomorrow would be better than today and that the next day would be better than that day and the next day would be better than that day. And see what hope does is hope tells you there is a tomorrow. Hope tells you that life's not going to stay. And can I be honest with you? Some of you are so COVID-minded, you've lost all hope that there will ever be a possibility. And someone says, well, are you just saying that, that COVID's not real? I know it's real. I had COVID, but I know there's life after COVID. So in the midst of that, I'm just saying to you that in life, you have to be a person of hope. You have to be a person who says, hey, God created me. God created me inherently in me to know that tomorrow's going to be better than today, and the next day is going to be better than that, and the next day is going to be better than that, and that you never lose hope. And see, the biggest struggle in the body of Christ is we have too many believers that are hopeless. You've gone through trauma. Some of you have gone through families where there's abuse. Some of you have gone through circumstances where you've been diagnosed. Some of you have gone through disappointing careers. Some of you have lived in, in, in the middle of hardship where racism has victimized you. But I'm telling you that you have a God, according to Romans 15, 13, who is the God of all hope. And you never let this world take your hope away. Dodie went on to write this wonderful book, Healed of Cancer. And if you haven't read it, I would encourage everybody to get it because it is just a book where she understood the power of hope. So number one, you were created to be a person of hope. But number two is this, hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. Hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. So you were created to be a person of hope. Without hope, the Bible says your heart begins to be weakened. It's sick. But on the other hand, the Bible says that hope will do for your soul what faith does for your heart. In Psalm 42 and verse 11, David said this, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? 
Basically, he says this. He says, why is it I get up in the mornings and I'm already down? Why is it I get up every morning and I'm already discouraged? Before I get out of bed, my heart, I'm just quiet and I'm troubled by everything. I'm messed up by everything. Why is it that way? He says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? But then he says something. He says, but hope thou in God. See, what David knew was this, is that hope would do for his soul, that hope would begin to give him an expectation of God, that hope would begin to work in him a positive outcome, and that he needed that, that when his tendency was to wake up discouraged, to wake, oh, there's so many problems, there's so many challenges, there's so many disappointments, so many this, and can I pray right now that some of you, you just need the hope of God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 19, it says that hope is the anchor of our soul. And some of you, when the winds get going and the waves get going and circumstances get going, you need to have something that anchors your soul, that says, hey, yeah, it looks bad. Yeah, it seems bad. No, it doesn't look good. No, it doesn't look great. No, it doesn't look positive, but that you're going to get through it because you have a God who can give you hope and that you can be like Abraham. When there was no hope, God gave him hope. If you went to the Library of Congress, you would find that every year they list the top books that are read in the United States. And every year, the most read book is always going to be the Bible. They don't even count it because they just know every year it's the most read book that will ever be read in this country. But then they begin to list other books. But if you go over and you look, usually every year there's a book called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl that is always in the top 10. And if you haven't read that book, I would encourage you, you need to read that book. It's a powerful book. But it's a very interesting book and it's a very hard book, but it's a very encouraging book because it deals with a man, Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl was an individual who had uh, gone through trauma because he was a Jew and he lived during the Nazi persecution of the Jewish people. Now, Viktor was a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and he had written a manuscript that he wanted to get published. This was his pride and joy. It's what he had lived for, to write this manuscript. It was on people behavior. He, he just thought it was going to be a game changer, and he had spent every ounce of his free time writing it. But when he was captured, he knew that most likely that manuscript would be destroyed. So what he did was he sewed it into his garments. And so he talks about in this book how that they squeezed him on the train and there were so many people on the train and the train was so packed and the train was just uh, so packed together that some people couldn't even survive the train ride and they died. You couldn't lay down, you couldn't sit down. You were suffocating in this train. But he talks about how they opened the door of the train when they finally get to the concentration camps. And there's guards there, and they're making quick decisions. Do you go to the right lane? Do you go to the left lane? And based on which lane you went in was going to determine whether you're going to live. Because 
If you went to the left lane, that was your last day on this planet. That meant that they were walking you to the gas chamber. He talks about how he had families and friends that were walked. He knew that that would be their last day. But they looked at him and they thought he had strength to help them in the factories, so they pointed him to the right lane. So he walks. He knows these people over here are dead men walking, that they will not survive the day. But he walks in the right lane. They walk him into this big room. When they walk him into this big room, they have guards all around and they tell him to just strip naked. Literally, they make him take off their clothes. At this point, Victor knows that he's not going to be able to hide his manuscript. In fact, as he begins to take off his clothes, the manuscript falls out. And when the manuscript falls out, a guard comes by and he picks it up. He looks at it with disdain and he just throws it. But for Victor Frankl, that was devastating. See, that was his hope. That was his life. That was his dream. He wanted to get that published. He wanted to get that out. That's what he had worked. He says at that moment, every desire to live left him. He said he wished that he had gone in the left-hand lane. He had no desire to live another second. He wanted to be in the gas chamber. It was all over for him. The guards then looked as they're stripped down and, and point over to a corner there, and there's all these garments there, and, and these garments aren't pristine. They're the garments that other inmates had worn right up until they died. So they're stained, and, and they have foul smell because it's every bodily fluid of somebody as they're being worked to death and then being marched to a gas chamber. And their last act was to take off these clothes, and now these clothes are laying there, and they're to put one on. The guards force him to do that. He goes over there, he picks one up, and he puts it on. All of them are exactly the same. They all look the same. And they all have this pocket that's right here. Just this pocket. And the thing about this pocket is this. is he begins to reach in instinctively, he says, I don't know why I did it. But as I reached into it, he said, I felt crumpled up just this little piece of paper. He says, I began to pull it out, I began to open it up. And he said, it just had two words. But he knew the two words. He was a Jewish man. And he knew exactly what the two words were. He knew that they were from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. See, as a Jewish man from the age of five, you were trained every morning and every evening that you prayed the Shema. And the Shema was a prayer that every Jewish man would pray all of his life. And it was a composite of three verses in the Old Testament. And it starts off with these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And remember Israel. Except it didn't have those words. It had the next two. The Lord. All that was on this sheet of paper was the Lord. He talks about how when he pulled it out, he began to look at this little sheet of paper and it said, the Lord. And he began to think, I'm in a concentration camp, but he's still the Lord. My dreams have been dashed, but he's still the Lord. Everything says that I'm about to die, but he's still the Lord. 
Everything says that I won't make it through here, but he's still the Lord. He said, as he began to read that, something began to happen inside him. And he said, we're just a few minutes later, earlier, he had lost all desire to live. He said, all of a sudden, he began to feel invigorated because he said, yeah, this is a concentration camp, but he's still the Lord. Yes, this is a death place, but he's still the Lord. Yes, this is a place that people don't come out of, but he's still the Lord. And he said, as he began to read those words over and over again, he said, something began to fill him. See, what he was experiencing was hope. He was experiencing the fact that no matter where you're at, he's still the Lord. No matter what you're going through, he's still the Lord. No matter what the diagnosis is, he's still the Lord. No matter what the prognosis is, he's still the Lord. No matter what circumstances say, he's still the Lord. And he writes that two words of the Bible got him through the concentration camp, the Lord. And you know, here's what I wonder. If two words of the Bible could get him through the concentration camp and you've got 66 books of the Bible, why isn't there enough to get you through what you're faced with? See, some of you, you've enjoyed your problems for too long. We all know it. You've told us about them. But now you have a choice. Is he the Lord? You've been diagnosed with cancer, but he's the Lord. You've lost your job, but he's the Lord. Your family and your marriage don't look good, but he's still the Lord. The reality of who he is gives you hope. So here's what I know. Number one, you were created to be a person of hope. Number two, hope will do for your soul what faith does for your heart. But number three, when you have hope, it changes everything. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, it says this, the thoughts that I have for you are for good and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. See, you have no future unless you have hope. And he says, the words that I'm thinking about you are for good and not for evil. I've had people come up to me and say, God doesn't think about me. And I'd say, yes, he does. Well, if God thinks about me, he thinks bad things about me. I said, no, he doesn't. See, when he thinks about you, he's not looking down from heaven saying, look at them. Look at what they do. They're such a disappointment. They're such a failure. They shouldn't even be on the planet. I can't believe we even created them. He says the thoughts that he has for you are for good. He's thinking about the possibilities of your life. He's thinking about what you can do. He's thinking about what can be accomplished. He's thinking about that. But what people many times fail to realize is that when God wrote those words to Israel, they weren't written when Israel was at Jerusalem. They were written when Israel was in captivity. They were written when Jerusalem had been destroyed. It had been totally devastated. There was no reason for anyone to want to go back there. And yet in captivity, God says, I'm thinking about you. And the thoughts that I have for you are good. 
And I know everything looks like it couldn't get any worse than it is right now, but I want you to know you have a future and you have a hope. And what God's saying is, is that somehow hope begins to transcend our circumstances. Somehow hope begins to take us to places that are bigger than what people believe are possible. One of those stories that I've read over the years is the story of a young lady. This was decades ago. Today, we would never allow it to happen because we're more conscious of it. She grew up in a small town, but in this particular small town, they all kept the secret. See, she was from a very bad family. And this family that she was from She grew up as a little girl being abused. She wasn't just abused by her dad, she was abused by her mom too. So here she was, just this little girl, and every day she would go through punishment that no person should ever put a child through. She's being victimized in ways that no child should ever be victimized. People in the community knew, but back then you didn't report it. It was just sort of a secret. But she grew up. She had this little friend that was sort of her confidant. And they were best friends. But one day this little girl who grew up in this horrible, harsh home was old enough to get away. And she got away and she went off to school. She ended up graduating from school and she ended up going to college and she graduated from college. She ended up moving back to the town where all this had happened. She ended up marrying this nice guy who was a Christian. She had become a Christian. She had a couple of kids. This little girl who was her confidant is now a mama and they're at the playground. And they're watching their kids play. And the little girl that was her confidant says, I just don't get it. She's talking to this girl that grew up in this abusive home. She said, I just don't get it. She said, what don't you get? I said, when I look at you, I don't get it. I said, here you are. You're a graduate of college. You've got a great marriage. You've got two kids. Your life seems so good. I said, well, what don't you get? said, everything about how you were raised says that one, you should be a dropout. Two, you should be an alcoholic. Three, you should be an addict. And four, that you should probably be dead by now. Everything says that that should be the outcome of who you are. And yet you're this wife, this mom, this Christian, this great family. How did this happen? And this girl that 
had been victimized, turned and smiled at her friend and said, I guess God just had more love than my family had hate. See, it's only God who can take the worst moments and still give you hope. It's only God. What I've learned is I pastor thousands of people. Most of them don't have a faith problem. Most of them have a hope problem. And I want to say to you that you've got the God of all hope. And he wants to fill you with hope today. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Father, that in this room that you would take people that have been devastated by life, would you just breathe your hope into them? I pray, Lord, that you would begin to speak to people who've gone through tragedy. Would you just fill their hearts with hope? I pray, Father, that in the name of Jesus, you would take individuals, that their circumstances don't look good. Would you be the God of hope for them? I pray that the hope of God would fill the hearts of people right now. And they'd be like Abraham, that when there was no hope, you would give them hope. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us this week. We pray that this message encouraged and inspired you. If you want to find out how you can be a part of Tree of Life, just go to our website, treeoflifechurch.org. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend.